Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. How many of you have seen the movie A Christmas Story? Yeah, most of you have seen it because remember when TNT used to do the 24-hour Christmas Story marathons? Oh my goodness, it was the worst. it's the story about Ralphie, this boy who wants a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas, but everybody, even Santa, tells him, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, right? Well, the, the movie about boy Ralphie is narrated by adult Ralphie, okay? Adult Ralphie's looking back on this story, this time in his childhood, explaining why everything happens as the movie goes on. And so <clears throat> you'll remember like the scene where, what's his name? Is it Flick? Yeah, Flick sticks his tongue to the frozen pole. Remember this? And we're all watching it and we're thinking, don't do it. Why is he doing this? And adult Ralphie, the narrator explains, he was triple dog dared. And so he had to do it. And, uh, or you may remember the scene when uh, Ralphie's dad lets out this string of expletives and uh, Ralphie, the narrator says, my father worked in profanity the way other artists might work in oil or clay. It was his true medium and he was a master. Or uh, that's one of the best lines. <clears throat> Remember when Scott Farkas, what a great name, Scott Farkas, the bully throws that snowball and hits Ralphie and, and Ralphie's eyes begin to well up with tears and Ralphie, the narrator says, <clears throat> deep in the recesses of my brain, a tiny red hot flame began to glow. And then Ralphie jumps on Farkas and begins to pummel him, letting out his own string of expletives. Okay, um, the good news of Mark, no easy transition between those two. The good news of Mark <laughs> is, is not exactly like a Christmas story, okay? Um, for one, it, it doesn't tell the, the standard Christmas story of Jesus in the manger and the magi and the shepherd. Uh, but it's also not like a Christmas story in that, in that there is no narrator that pauses the action throughout to explain everything that's happening to us. Um, and that's probably nowhere more apparent than at the cross in the story or the, the part in the story where Jesus dies. That we don't have a narrator like Ralphie that, that pauses the action while Jesus is there on the cross to explain to us everything that this death means for us all these years later. <clears throat> now, the rest of the New Testament is doing that. In fact, what I would love for you to do this afternoon, I'm gonna show you a couple other passages today. I would love if this afternoon you went and spent some time in Colossians 1 and 2. Let me just point out a couple verses from Colossians 1 and 2 where Paul's talking about, or where he's explaining, is a better way to say it, where he's explaining what happened at the moment Jesus died. This is what he says in Colossians 1. Jesus, <clears throat> he rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He set us free through the son and forgave us our sins. He goes on, he says, he has reconciled you by his physical body through death, so at the cross, to present you before God as a people who are holy and faultless and without blame. It means he's done something with our sin. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. 
He canceled it by nailing it where? To the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. So apparently a lot happens for us when Jesus dies. Uh, you know, page after page of the New Testament is basically an explanation here. And in just two chapters in Colossians, we see that when Jesus died, we were rescued. We were liberated from these powers of evil. We were brought from one kingdom into a new kingdom. We were set free. Our sins were forgiven. Our debts were canceled. We were made holy and presented before God as righteous and blameless, which we're not except for what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So, so, so much happens, but Mark doesn't explain all of these details. And that doesn't mean though that Mark isn't trying to make a, a point here. He's not trying to say something about what happened for us when Jesus died. And in some ways it's like the difference between reading a textbook that has little, little like um, bullets or cutouts that explain something that you're reading in the text versus reading a story or, or novel or watching a good movie. That there's, those are still making a point, but it's, it's woven into the story itself. And so most scholars, most people who read Mark 15, would tell us that the story of Jesus' death is leading up to this moment in Mark 15, verse 37. So if you've got your Bible and you wanna go there, go there with me, it'll also be on the screen behind us or on the screen down below if you're watching online. This is Mark 15, starting in verse 37. Mark 15 begins with a sham trial. The people shout, crucify him, Pilate. Pilate relents, he is crucified, he hangs on the cross, he's mocked, he's humiliated, he feels the distance of God, Jesus does. But then we read this. Jesus let out a loud cry and he died. So we're paying attention to what happens when Jesus dies. Jesus let out a loud cry and died and the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, a soldier, who stood facing Jesus, saw how he died, he said, this man was certainly God's son. What, what's this business about the, the temple curtain tearing from top to bottom? What's that about? Most, again, most people reading Mark say, this is the thing you cannot miss when you read Mark's telling of the death of Jesus. So what is that about? Um, how many of you got kids or grandkids? Uh, maybe make a note of this. This is our favorite children's book in our family. It's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. This was recommended to us by some friends here at Highland. And we read this book all the time to our kids. I think we've read it a hundred times. When I walked in down here, Foster says, hey, we have that book at home. I'm like, yeah, I, I stole it to, to bring it here, okay? So uh, and I'm gonna give it back in just a second, buddy. Uh, it's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And in some ways, the title of this book kind of says it all. And if you're gonna try to explain to your kids what we talk about this morning when you, when you go home from here, you might pick up this book and it'll help. Although good luck getting it on Amazon right now, right? It's, you're gonna have a hard time with that. All right. So what it's connecting is the garden. Which garden are we talking about? The Garden of Eden, the place where you and I were designed for, created for, the place where God lived with us, the garden, this curtain, the one that tears, and the cross of Jesus Christ. It's making that connection. So Mark's readers 
would have connected these three things automatically. But you and I are 2,000 years removed from this story. We don't live in Jerusalem where that temple, where that curtain, where the temple is and where the curtain is hanging inside it, where everybody knows it's there. So we just, we're removed from that. So let's try to explain it today. So to do that, let's go back to the garden. Let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember in the garden, you have these two characters, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And they're told not to eat from a certain tree told not to eat from that tree by God. And they do eat from that tree, even though they've been told not to. They disobey God, sin enters the world. And do you remember what happens next? This is in Genesis three, starting in verse eight. During the the day's cool evening breeze, they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking into the garden and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees And the Lord God called to a man and said to him, where are you? What I want you to pay attention to and what's maybe easy to miss and what we don't think about enough when we retell this story. What kind of world were you and I designed for? Think about it. Humans, you and I, were made for a world in which God comes strolling by in the evening to hang out with us. I mean, you and I were made for a world and where the creator of the universe just chills with us, just comes looking for us to hang out. I mean, think about that. We were designed for a particular kind of place, living in a particular kind of way. It's like, it's like the way that a boat is built for the water or a, a car for the road, or Frosty the snowman is, is he's known as made for winter. And then the sun was hot that day and what happens, right? It, it doesn't go good for Frosty. So this is, I mean, one of the most important, important points for us to consider as believers today living outside of the garden, right? that we were made for a, a different world than the one we're living in. Think about that. Uh, this is why one of the most important philosophers of our time is a guy named Charles Taylor. And he says, and I've, I've shared some, some of the things he said before, but he says that humans, Christian and non-Christian, right, that the world is haunted by what he calls transcendence, haunted by transcendence. And what he means is that you and I live our lives in, the, in what he calls imminence. So what's imminent is what's all around me, what I can see and touch and taste, the people around me, the things around me, that's what's imminent, it's what's close to me, that's what imminent means. And yet the whole world is haunted by this sense that surely this is not all there is. Or the question sometimes put like this, is there, is there more to life than this? And if there is, there's something transcendent beyond this world out there. Could I experience it in this life? That's what he means by haunted for transcendence. And in some ways, he's just fleshing out this point. We were designed for a different kind of world, a world in which we experience the transcendent presence of God daily on the regular, where he would just come strolling by in the evening and hang out with us on the porch. That's, that's kind of the world we're made for. But notice what happens when Adam and Eve do this thing that they're told not to do before God removes them from the garden. What do they do? They hide. 
You know, they sense, before God has done anything, they sense that something inside of them has changed and they can no longer handle what they were made for. And so they hide from the presence of God. Okay. Now God affirms what they're feeling, that something about them has changed. We call that sin. And that because of that sin, they can't be with him like they used to be. And he removes them from the garden. And do you remember what he places at the entrance to the garden? Do you remember this at the end of Genesis 3? We're told that he places winged creatures, winged creatures with flaming swords there at the front of the garden. So the message is is pretty clear. Unless you're going to get past these winged creatures with flaming swords, you ain't coming back in here. All right. So... What is, that, what is that teaching me about the curtain? Okay, that's the garden. What it's teaching me is that the tragedy of the human condition is we don't live where or with who we were made to. So we are like a program or a software that's trying to, to run something it wasn't designed to do. Uh, how, how many of you remember when the big scandal came out? And we all knew this for years. When the big scandal came out, that Apple was slowing down your old phone with every update that you did. You remember this? And they were, they were like, hey, we had to do it. It wasn't our fault. Yeah. I understand, though, that an update to an old platform has its limitations. And so one way you might think about the curtain is like a software upgrade on an old platform. So here's, here's how compassionate and loving and good God is. God knows that we were designed for a world where we would be with him and experience him regularly, but that's not the world we can live in anymore because something about us has changed, our sin. And so God sets up this new system. He does this upgrade and the system has all these barriers, walls and walls and walls and then curtain after curtain until you get to this final curtain in the middle of the temple. And behind that curtain was a place in Jerusalem in the center of the temple we call the Holy of Holies. Behind the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, God dwells. And so God isn't with you, not with us like he was in the garden, but he's closer. And every year, one priest, the high priest, gets to go into, behind that curtain, into what is essentially heaven on earth. It's the garden all over again. It's the place where God is. But I tell you what, he goes in there and he's scared out of his mind the whole time. Because he knows for a sinful person, bringing all the sins of Israel into the presence of God, his life is in danger. So he gets in and he gets out. He doesn't hang out. But there are benefits of this to us. There's somebody who's bringing our prayers to God every year. There's somebody who's taking our sins to God every year and dealing with them. So there are benefits to this to us, but it's like a software upgrade on a platform that's just not designed to run here. And so here's, here's why we know that, because embroidered on that curtain is what we know from history about the curtain, that on that curtain was a scene of heaven or a scene of the garden. So what you're supposed to be reminded of as you look at it is that beyond this curtain is is heaven on earth. It's the presence of God. It's what you were made for. But in addition to that scene from heaven, in the front of that scene on that curtain were those two angels with their flaming swords. And so the message was what you want is beyond this curtain and you ain't getting it. You still can't come as close to me as you want. And so what we know from the story of God's people from the rest since the garden through the Old Testament leading up to Jesus is that this does not satisfy that deepest human longing. 
that we still want more God. The question is though, is God satisfied with this arrangement? Is this good enough for God? It's not good enough for humans, it's not good enough for you and I, but is God okay with, with this arrangement? And so that brings us back to Mark 15. Look again at your Bible, Mark 15, 38. Let me point some out here. What do we learn about what God wants at the moment Jesus dies? Jesus breathes his last, and then what? The curtain of the sanctuary was torn, how? Into, from top to bottom. So who's tearing the curtain? Uh, think about that. Let's say you had two really angry disciples of Jesus who are angry that this innocent man that they love is being killed. And let's say that they somehow got past all the guards in the temple and they got to the curtain at the Holy of Holies and they're thinking to themselves, we are really gonna show these guys. They've made a big mistake. They both grab the bottom of that curtain and one of them says, I'm gonna run this way, you run that way. And they run in opposite directions. And how's the curtain gonna tear from bottom to top? And the curtain tears how? From top to bottom. Who has access to the top of the curtain? Just God. You know, Mark's leading us up to this point when Jesus dies. This is the good news according to Mark that when Jesus dies, God tears apart the barrier that separates him from us top to bottom. And the visual is really obvious. What this means is that heaven on earth, the garden all over again is spilling out on to us. Our deepest longings, our deepest desire is possible again. <clears throat> but of course, unless something has changed about us, this is not good news for us, this is bad news for us. Because the presence of God for sinful people is dangerous. There's this scene in 1 Samuel, maybe you remember this scene. Go back to the Old Testament again. There's this scene in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant, that thing that's housed behind the curtain, the place where God sits and dwells. There's this scene in 1 Samuel when that Ark is stolen. And then the people who steal it start to die because they're sinful in the presence of the Holy God and they can't handle it. It's the same reason Adam and Eve hid. So you know what they do? They give the Ark of the Covenant to somebody else. <laughs> they're like, here, take it. Those people are like, great, we got the ark. And they start to die. So they give it to somebody else, to the people of Beth Shemesh. It's like that, that sweater that your aunt gives you and then you re-gift it at the Christmas work party, right? And then the next year, somebody else re-gifts it. And it just keeps, that's probably not a good metaphor for what's happening here. But look what happens when it gets to the people of Beth Shemesh. This is in 1 Samuel 6, 19. But God struck down some of the people of Beth Shemesh because they had the audacity to look in the Lord's chest. God struck 70 people down and the community grieved because the Lord had struck them so severely. And the people of Beth Shemesh said, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Where can he go that is away from us? Right. Who can stand before this holy God? This is exactly what Adam and Eve felt the moment they sinned. What do they do? They don't stand before God anymore, they hide. Something inside of them makes it impossible for them to enjoy what their heart most longs for, the presence of God. What's inside of them prevents them from, from experiencing what they want most. Who can stand before that holy God? And so I can imagine that when that temple curtain tears in the temple, there were priests who were diving for cover. 
Like the, the heaven spilling out isn't good news for us if we're still messed up inside. If heaven spills out on us, then we are dead. But you know what happens? Instead of anyone else dying, aside from Jesus, the presence of heaven spills out and it washes over this guy, the centurion. He's a soldier. And what Mark uses is this really peculiar word to describe the centurion. What he says is, and you, and you may miss it in the English translation, what he says is that the centurion stood against Jesus. It may say something like he stood opposite Jesus. What he means is that this is a guy who is against this guy on the cross. Not for him, he's against him. And the curtain tears and the presence of God spills out. And this guy who was against Jesus looks up and says, Oh, this man was certainly God's son. You know, apparently he is feeling something that he can't explain, can't articulate, except that this guy is God's son. What's he experiencing? The presence of God, finally. Experiencing the thing his heart has always longed for. So unless our sin, unless the sin of this centurion was dealt with at the cross, he couldn't have handled it, but apparently it was. So the authors of the New Testament, unlike Mark here, the rest of the authors of the New Testament, they go into great lengths to explain this. Let me just show you a couple of these, and you might spend some time on these this afternoon. This is in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Listen to what Paul describes as happening when this curtain tears. This is, this is what he's describing. God showed his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so now we have been made what? Righteous, without sin, by his blood. And we can be even more certain that we'll be saved from God's wrath through him. And if we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still enemies, reconciled to God, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we're going to be saved by his life? And not only that, we take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through one, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. The thing lost since the garden, we've got it again. Or the author of Hebrews puts it like this. This is Hebrews 10. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies, presence of God, by means of Jesus' blood, through a new and living way that he opened us up for us through the curtain, which is his body. There's that curtain. And we have a great high priest over God's house, and therefore, let's draw near. <laughs> I, can you imagine how crazy that would have sounded to, to a Jewish person at the time? Hey, let's get close to that inner room. Let's draw near. No way. He says, let's draw near with genuine hearts, with the certainty that our faith gives us. There was this guy named Augustine a long time ago as a church father. And um, famously, he was, he was rebellious and restless. Uh, always looking for something that would satisfy what he couldn't quite satisfy. And as the story goes, one day he's standing in a garden and there's a Bible sitting on the bench of the garden and the pages are flapping in the wind and he hears a voice telling him to, to take up and read. And he does, he takes up and he reads. And eventually, after time spent in the Word, time spent with a guy named Ambrose, he becomes convicted and compelled by the story of Jesus and what it means for him that God is now, is now with him. And and he famously said one of, the, one of the best lines, maybe ever, 
He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Uh, Friday night, the storm. Uh, like you, we were, we were woken up by the sirens on our phone and the sirens, you know, outside. And, and so then, you know, you're making that decision, do we get the kids up? And we do, we do. You know, we're taking this seriously. So we get the kids up. I think it's like 1230, something like that. And so the kids are really disoriented. What, what they know is that you're not supposed to be awake at 1230 and this isn't right. You know, these sirens are going off, the storm is flashing outside, the, the, the rain is just pounding our backyard. You can't even see out our back window. It's loud, boom, boom, boom. And the trees are blowing overhead and that's terrifying, right? And, and, and they don't understand exactly, my kids, what's going on in this moment, but they know this is not how the world's supposed to be. And so we go into this inner room and I grab a mattress from upstairs and we haul it down, this, this single twin mattress, and we got them on the twin mattress. We're trying to get them to go back to bed and they're anxious. And Lindsay and I are roaming about the house and Deacon just will not lay down. He just will not calm down, right? And finally, I lay down beside him, right? And it's like everything that's wrong outside is okay, right? Because he's with his dad. What else matters? You know? Like, that's, that's the longing that you and I have inside. It was wired into us. We were made for a world in which we were with him all the time. Not a, not, not a world where there's not problems and issues, right? That, that world still exists. But in this world, with all of its problems and challenges and devastation, you can be with him all the time. Can you believe that? It's because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross.